Well, we've, we've seen over and over again in American history uh, episodes where books become the target of um, protest. And um, in the 1920s, there was a big battle in Boston and also in New York State over so-called obscene works, which were in fact some of the most classic um, works of American literature that were being introduced at the time. And they were more um, honest and frank about um, sex and, um, and also you know, more realistic in the way they portray capitalism. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Censorship is back in vogue in the U.S. In 2021, there were attempts to remove nearly 1,600 books from libraries, schools, and universities, a fourfold increase over 2019. The censorship typically focuses on books that cover LGBTQ issues or race and racism. But is all censorship bad? The alleged gunman who killed 10 people in Buffalo used social media to livestream his attack and to post his racist manifesto. How should social media companies control violence and hate speech? Should Donald Trump be allowed to use Twitter and other social media, even though he has used those platforms to spread misinformation and stoke violence? Christopher Finan has been grappling with issues of censorship for 35 years. He is executive director of the National Coalition Against Censorship and the former president of the American Booksellers Foundation for Free Expression. He says that struggles over free speech date back to the founding of the country, and he chronicles the changing nature of censorship in his new book, How Free Speech Saved Democracy, the untold history of how the First Amendment became an essential tool for securing liberty and social justice. I began by asking Finan to explain what the First Amendment says and why it is first. Well, it wasn't originally going to be the first, but a couple of amendments that uh, had been considered first didn't meet with everybody's approval, so it moved up. And um, we'd like to think, of course, that it's the first because it's so important, but, um, and I think it is, but um, yeah, kind of historically, it could have been second or third, but the um, but it defends it, it guarantees the right uh, to freedom of speech, uh, freedom of the press, provides for um, in addition some rights uh, regarding the ability to petition government and to um, uh, that have been widened um, to include you know protests against government. Uh, it also protects um, freedom of religion. That's um, not an area that uh, I'm particularly expert in. Um, the two kind of halves of the First Amendment tend to have separate, um, uh, you know, separate advocates. So um, I'm on the free speech side. Um, so also, right, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of the press and free speech generally are kind of the pillars of the First Amendment. That's interesting that you, you're you saying that the freedom of religious religion science sort of has its own defenders and advocates versus the freedom of the press and free speech side. Explain that split. Well, um, it's not, of course, that we don't, um, you know, certainly our group and, and many other groups that we work with on free speech issues. It's not that we we are in any way um, uncertain of the importance of freedom of speech, but it tends to be something, it's often something, it's particularly in, in recent years, um, that is cited by conservative groups um, actually as, um, uh, you know, in ways that could potentially um, uh, you know, could potentially affect other rights, sometimes free speech rights. Um, I mean, it's rare that they're actually um, directly opposed. It's just that um, conservative groups right now believe freedom of religion is under threat from, um, from government and free speech groups tend to think that the conservative groups are the threat to, to free speech. So um, give an example of how 
conservatives have construed freedom of religion in a way that constrains freedom of speech? Well, it's not a direct example. There, the Supreme Court recently um, accepted a case. Um, there have been these, these cases involving whether um, private businesses ought to, um, uh, ought to be required to um, provide services to people that they don't want to provide service to. There was a case involving a baker who didn't want to make a cake for a gay wedding. Um, and um, and the, the court didn't actually come to a very clear decision in that case. But there's another case now in which, um, uh, in which conservative groups are advocating um, that, um, that conservative business owners should be, should continue that should have this right to deny service to um, uh, people who they disagree with uh, for, for whatever reason. And um, so this is an example in which conservatives are using freedom of speech um, to try to, um, uh, to try to, you know, protect the, the religious values of these business owners. And they want to make it possible actually for um, these business owners to post signs in their businesses saying, we, we reserve the right to deny services to LGBT, um, uh, LGBT people. And that they, they argue that that is um, an, an expression of free speech and should be, be protected as free speech. Um, that's not an area, um, my group chose not to participate in that case with an amicus brief um, because you know, we, um, we think that that is, um, you know, that is a license to discriminate and we're not, gonna, um, we're not gonna endorse such a position. This kind of brings out a tension that has always existed in the movement to protect free speech um, and maybe you can, you're a historian, you can take us back to the beginnings of the idea that free speech was foundational to democracy to, to explain it wasn't free speech for everyone. Um, no, for, who no, was no, supposed actually, to have free speech? Yeah, um, it's very clear looking at the historical record and going directly to Benjamin Franklin um, for, uh, for this fact that the, the founding fathers didn't really know quite what they were endorsing um, when they, they guaranteed freedom of speech. And they showed that, and he said, you know, he said as much, he said, right, we really had no idea. I mean, they knew in principle that it was a, it was a, a right that could be exerted against government. Um, and they certainly had their experience of tyrannical governments. And, you know, that's primarily how they, they thought about it, um, but you know the thinness of that um, that foundation was exposed just a few years after the adoption of the First Amendment, when the Federalists passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which authorized them to put critics of the government in jail, which they did. <laughs> More than you know, they prosecuted over a hundred. Jeffersonian editors and um, and uh, supporters um, for you know the most um, uh, the most inane remarks critical of the the administration of John Adams and um, and subsequently when uh, when Jefferson you know took office uh, uh, just after Adams he. You know, these law, the, the law was um, expired at the end of Adams's term, but Jefferson made sure to repudiate, as did um, many in, in, um, in the country, to repudiate that rationale and to argue that, in fact, that had always been part of what the First Amendment was supposed to protect against. Um, but, you know, what we see over and over again through the 19th century into the 20th century is that 
um, what was actually allowed was always um, subject to, um, to play and that there was always a lot of censorship in America right through, um, you know, right through the middle of the 20th century. And, um, you know, starting with the, the Federalists and then the abolitionists um, launched their campaign. And, uh, you know, the, at a time when it they were intensely unpopular, both not only in the South, which suspected that their advocacy could lead to um, insurrection, slave insurrections, which in fact actually occurred in places around the world and in America later. Um, but free, and, free um, speech was also kind of tracked with, you, you might say the ultimate form of speech is voting. Um, right. who, who gets to have the freedom to select their representatives and leaders? And of course, voting was not for everyone. Women couldn't vote. Blacks couldn't vote. Non-landowners couldn't vote. Um, I think you write something like 30% of eligible Americans couldn't uh, were the only people who could vote. Those were white landowners. Um, so this idea of free speech goes back to, you know, I, I guess we could link it to that, that the people who were deemed worthy of freedom of speech were white men. Yeah, um, and, and the fight to broaden democracy um, became the fight for free speech uh, because those that minority of white men um, used every opportunity they could to, um, to try to re contain, retain power for themselves. Um, so every progressive movement in the 19th century and into the 20th century, whether it was uh, the abolitionist movement or the women's rights movement or the union movement, every one of them faced often violent uh, uh, suppression. And, uh, you know, the, the abolitionists got the first taste of it. They were uh, so used to being attacked and, um, with vegetables and rocks. And um, whenever they appeared in a small town to speak, that um, they got, they, be, they began to carry around what they called their storm suit, which was, which was what, a used clothes so that they didn't ruin anything that, that uh, you know, any clothing that they cared about. But they were also attacked violently. Frederick Douglass uh, lost the use of his right arm in one of those struggles, or not the entire use, but, but the effective use of it. And um, Elijah Lovejoy, an editor, uh, of a paper that advocated abolition, had to defend his press three times um, from uh, mobs that, uh, that tore it apart. And the fourth time he was killed. Um, so um, yeah, so this is violent, uh, violent suppression. Women had, um, weren't objects of violence per se, but they were harassed, they were, um, by opponents of women's rights who thought women shouldn't, were not strong enough or smart enough to be voters. Um, and when they started their movement in the 1840s, they faced ridicule and um, uh, an immense pressure to stay home, um, which they rejected. And um, they forced, you know, they forced the issue of uh, suffrage for women on uh, a very hostile country. Um, and then the union movement, which was probably the target of the most violence, uh, the First Amendment said nothing about the right to organize uh, unions um, or to bring together um, to meet, um, and often uh, union meetings were banned, or to picket, and often picket lines were attacked, um, sometimes by hired thugs, sometimes by state militia. And, um, and there were many deaths in association, in connection with those uh, protests because, um, you know, because violence, to, ultimately violence seemed to be the only way to settle these things. And then finally, you know, the turning point in our country came um, in World War I when uh, laws akin to the Alien and Sedition Act were passed to suppress criticism of the war. And um, more than 2,000 um, 
Americans were arrested for remarks as inane as, you know, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, the president, Wilson is a blockhead. And, and they were thrown into prison. And some of those prisons were, they were there for a long time um, before, you know, finally being released. Some of them lost their health, some of them lost their farms. Um, some of their families were uh, destroyed. You know, Eugene Debs, the three-time uh, candidate, socialist candidate for uh, president, was sentenced to 10 years in, in the penitentiary, and that's where he ran for president the last, the last time. So it was in reaction, really, to that um, civil liberties meltdown that some lawyers began to say, you know, if you can't criticize, if you can't talk openly and criticize a government for the most basic purposes of government, um, including civil defense and waging war, then you really can't talk about a democracy. So it's, it's not surprising that the ACLU gets started, you know, just after World War II, uh, World War I, sorry, in response to um, that travesty. War is so, yeah. often war is often used as a reason to crack down on free speech, and as you point out, World War One uh, leads to the creation of the ACLU. Talk about the significance of the ACLU um, in defending free speech. Why it came into being? So, um, up till up till. 1920, um, there were many free speech fights, right? They were all separate. They were fights by groups advocating for their particular rights, the um, right to, um, to oppose slavery, the, the right to vote, the right to organize unions. Um, what was missing was an understanding that that right had to be protected for everyone and that um, there had to be a commitment to um, the principle of free speech as a foundation of democracy. And, uh, and so ACLU coming, um, coming into being, actually they, in the early years, ACLU was almost entirely associated with fights for workers' rights. Um, in those same years, there were, there were many fights over books um, as books became increasingly realistic in their depiction of sex and, and violence. And, um, but the ACLU didn't really want anything to do with those fights um, because the founders of the ACLU were a little prudish themselves. But, um, but they fought very strongly and they went into, they went into communities um, where speech, union speech had been shut down and they put their, but they put their lives on the line um, and their legal resources on the line and their legislative efforts on um, entirely on supporting um, free speech. But at the same time, in the 1920s, they also defended the rights of the Klan. So, um, so that, you know, that demonstrated a, an evolution in the understanding of free speech um, that was critical and, and that has, um, that has only grown since then. And let me ask about that. And I should say, in the interest of disclosure, I'm a board member of the Vermont chapter of the ACLU. Um, this idea of defending the Klan, uh, which has really divided, uh, it's been both something that has divided the American Civil Liberties Union and kind of been uh, its hallmark, you know, as as showing or demonstrating this is what free speech looks like. Talk about that and, and even in your own work, um, defending uh, groups like the Klan, um, you know, groups that are you know, purveyors of hate speech of various sorts. Why should that be protected? Well, ultimately, um, the argument comes down to the, the basic free speech speech question, I think, is who gets to, who gets to decide what is good speech? Um, the, you know, the classic um, formulation of this really is in, you know, um, 
is, you know, the it comes in initial dissents in the Supreme Court um, against uh, decisions upholding, um, you know, upholding suppression. And um, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, writes an opinion in 1919, dissenting from almost everybody else on the court, saying that that we must protect speech. Um, even for ideas that we believe are fraught with death. And that was, that was his expression. Um, and certainly that is um, still a good, a good description of hate speech. Um, but the problem, the problem as, as Holmes points out, is that in a democracy, there is nobody to tell you what is good speech and what is bad speech. There is no king, there is no pope, there is no um, higher authority. We have to decide for ourselves um, as citizens what ideas have value and, and which don't. And, and the way we express our opinion is by electing people that represent our views, not by suppressing those whose views we disagree with. And um, so the question, uh, even today, about what is is hate speech is very much um, is very relevant. Um, at this point, the the people who decide what's hate speech and what's not hate speech is uh, is largely the social media companies, which now engage in content moderation where they weren't doing so um, in the beginning, where they thought it was great for everybody to be able to speak as as much as they wanted. Um, and, you know, that is their a right that they have under the First Amendment because they are, they are, they have First Amendment rights themselves. But when the question becomes what can government do about it, it's still, uh, it's still an, ins, an insuperable, an, an, um, uh, something that can't be overcome that um, to allow government, government to make these decisions about what speech is appropriate and what isn't means giving, um, you know, giving power, giving, in a democracy, that power is going to shift back and forth and um, between the, the political parties. And we see that happening um, even today. Uh, we see, you know, um, in states where Republicans have super majorities in state legislatures, they're passing laws that um, say what is acceptable speech and what isn't in schools. Um, they're taking books out of school libraries. They are forbidding teachers to talk about um, race and, um, uh, and the persistence of racism. Uh, this is, you know, this is a danger to democracy. And um, so even though um, I think, you know, many of us have a clear understanding of what what's hate speech and what isn't, um, you know, we really don't want to turn that power over to a shifting political uh, environment um, where the people who end up in power may be people who don't agree with, who think that what we say is hate speech. And, you know, we, we go back to the, you know, the early days of the, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement um, when they were condemned as, uh, as advocates of hate speech because they were critical of the police. It's the, it's the inability to, um, to decide these issues, um, you know, that, um, and that the, the fact that these issues are so much, you know, so contested that we simply can't trust government to, to, um, to do the right thing. It may do the right thing while, when our people are in power, but um, you got to be prepared for the fact that power is going to change, and uh, the definition of of truth and uh, will also change. Social media and the power of social media to spread misinformation, to spread hate speech, you know. And and this week it's the murders in Buffalo, where social media is used as a vehicle for live streaming murder. And posting, um, you know, we we find out 
that this terrorist who killed the people in Buffalo uh, was a regular on the social media channels um, catering to the far right, uh, 4chan, 8chan, those places. What do you think should be done about constraining or regulating what goes on on the internet in terms of free speech? Well, I think um, I think we need to. I mean, certainly the you know what we've seen in the last couple of days and the previous attacks, um, racist attacks on, on various gatherings, um, you know, are painful evidence of you know the existence of a you know of white supremacist terrorism. Um, I think in the first place that that is um, something that law enforcement needs to address more directly. And, um, you know, they haven't put a lot of resources in, uh, into that in the past. And, um, you know, under Trump, you know, under Trump, the, the Justice Department was going, was looking at black activism um, and this is another example, again, of how, how government, um, uh, you know, about who's in charge has a lot to do with, how, you know, what government is, um, it, where it's focused and, um, uh, and it, why it suppresses in particular ways. But, um, but I think that, um, that law enforcement has to do a better job of, um, of tracking uh, these individuals and the groups that they're associated with and the places where they talk. One of the, one of the problems with hate speech laws um, up to now has been there, they, they haven't been very effective. I mean, there isn't any place that ha has a hate speech law, you know, there, that has a, a really effective um, hate speech law. And um, that, you know, the one of the dangers though of those laws is in fact that they suppress um that they push these people further underground and that um and that they become harder to track and harder to you know to bring to justice so um i don't think certainly government again i don't think the right government response is suppression um, and the social media companies, you know, their um, policies have changed over time. They have become more, most of them, um, you know, the places that you, you mentioned, there are still websites where uh, anything goes, people are free, invited to, you know, be as racist as they want. But, um, but the major, you know, the major social media companies have content regulation policies that they are attempting to enforce. It's a very difficult task because of the nature of social media. They do it inconsistently. They don't do a great job. Chris, I wonder if we could move into the current moment now of where we are seeing a wave of book banning, censorship, crackdowns on what can be taught in schools, um, Florida has become uh, an especially contested landscape for this under Governor Ron DeSantis, who seems to find this a gold mine of publicity uh, when he demands that books teaching about LGBTQ issues be removed, that teachers can be fired or charged with crimes for speaking about uh, LGBTQ issues. And of course, there have been many copycat um, efforts around the country, particularly in Republican-led states, to ban speech around LGBT issues, Black Lives Matter issues, the teaching of the, um, the 1619 Project, the New York Times uh, effort to, uh, you know, write about history that included, uh, fr from uh, the perspective of people such as slaves, um, what, what is going on? Why do you think that this is happening now? And, uh, and what can be done about it? Um, well, I, you know, my first answer is 
and the Republicans are trying to give me um, some publicity for my book, um, but I, I don't think they intended to. Um, well, we've, we've seen over and over again in American history uh, episodes where books become the target of um, protest. And um, in the 1920s, there was a big battle in Boston and also in New York State over so-called obscene works, which were in fact some of the most classic um, works of American literature that were being introduced at the time. And they were more um, honest and frank about um, sex and, um, and also you know, more realistic in the way they portray capitalism. And, um, but it was sex that was the real target in, that, uh, in those, those cases. And that's the first time that um, booksellers and librarians and publishers really began to fight uh, for free speech. And so there was, uh, there was that. There was the attack on books during the, uh, uh, the Cold War, the Red Scare, following World War II, um, when you know, many liberal titles came under pressure from patriotic groups around the country and um, Roy Cohn sent his, uh, his lieutenant around to, to censor the, the, the libraries that State Department embassies had around the world. And, um, and there was just in general, um, because of the, the effort to suppress communism, um, a knock-on effect on liberalism in general that, um, that affected books. And then um, we had this period uh, of uh, growth of free speech, uh, largely in response to the civil rights movement in the 40s and the 50s. Um, you know, the Supreme Court created important um, precedents to protect the civil rights movement from a widespread effort in the South to su suppress speech and suppress protest. And um, inevitably, in the nature of democracy, there, there came a counter uh, revolution uh, in the set began in the 70s. That's actually when the National Coalition Against Censorship and a lot of other free speech groups um, um, began uh, in, in response to this growing conservative pressure. Um, there was actually an advocacy, um, a president's commission on uh, obscenity that recommended decriminalizing sexually explicit speech um, for, um, for adults, and um, which Congress roundly rejected. I, and um, so um, the, in the election of Ronald Reagan uh, was also a, you know, kind of a, uh, a, an incentive for conservative advocacy groups um, to begin to put pressure on Congress to, to reimpose restrictions that had been um, repealed by or uh, struck down by the Supreme Court. So in the 80s, we saw a sudden um, up, upswing in a number of book challenges. And um, in, in a single year in the 1980s, there was as many as 1,300 uh, book challenges to, to um, challenges in books, mostly in, in schools and um, school libraries, but also affecting um, public libraries. And um, so there was, that was really the beginning uh, of kind of a couple of decades worth of fighting over culture and, um, you know, what, uh, you know, what it was, uh, and intellectual freedom. But it did, um, it did resolve itself and we made real progress in some ways by convincing school boards that they should adopt policies on book reviews instead of leaving it up to individual principals or superintendents or school boards to make decisions about individual titles. And the number of challenges fell. Um, there was a requirement, most of these policies required that there be a committee appointed of a parent, a teacher, a librarian, sometimes a student that would read the whole book, which is always, and it was such an important first step um, and decide whether it was appropriate or not. And um, these policies effectively um, protected um, many books. And 
Um, and what has happened today um, as we enter this latest uh, free speech crisis is that, um, and what's different today than in the 80s, is that the Republican Party has made um, free speech a talking, has made obscenity a talking point, um, sexual identity a talking point. Um, you know, the governor of Virginia ran on uh, you know, with Toni Morrison as part of his platform and, and her, you know, one of her books that um, included some sexual content as, as representative of the, of the, um, I, I just want to kind of interject sort of uh, some of the, the data around what we're talking about to, so that listeners uh, understand this, the scale of book banning going on now. Um, in uh, the American Library Association last year in 2021 tracked over 700 attempts to remove uh, library, school and university materials. Uh, and that involved about 1600 books. By comparison, the year before, in 2020, the association tracked only 150 attempts involving fewer than 400 books. So we're seeing a fourfold increase in the number of books that are being banned and removed from school and public locations. And that's really astounding. This is not incremental. This is you know, a tidal wave of censorship. Yeah. it's. Um... You know, on the on the book banning front, and they're, and they're kind of two fronts. There's the book banning front um, that's really directed at libraries, and what we what we've never seen before is we've never seen um, dozens of titles pulled uh, at the same time. We're used to one or two titles being challenged, but um, uh, sometimes as many as fifty titles um, are being pulled without having been evaluated. So they're abandoning, they're abandoning or even violating their own policies with respect to book reviews um, of challenge material um, and, um, and doing what their elected officials you know, are demanding, the people who hold the purse strings in, in, you know, for education, um, they are just collapsing um, and, uh, and really anything is, anything can be attacked. So that's, that's on the library front. Um, on the curriculum front, we have the, the passage of uh, at least 15 uh, so-called critical race theory laws, which, um, which target how teachers present um, information to students about race and, um, uh, and racism and slavery and also those, those same CRT laws also are laws that, um, uh, that deal with sexual identity as well. And um, so we have, you know, we have the kind of censorship that we really haven't seen since um, the 1920s in, in schools that we haven't seen since the 1920s when um, the teaching of evolution was banned. And, you know, we had, you know, the great fight, um, you know, over, um, you know, over that. So what, what do you attribute that to in this moment, this backlash against, um, as you point out, it's largely focused around issues of sexuality and race. Uh, it's 2022. What's the, uh, what, what's gotten into the water right now that has everybody, um, you know, well, working so hard to ban things. I mean, what's what has polarized our politics? Um, you know, these are this is a a reflection of um, the, the larger political um, you know political world, and um, you know there are people who aren't happy about um, the fact that uh, that there are LGBT books in schools and um, aren't happy, and just as they're not happy about LGBT marriage, but in particular, they're not married, ha happy about what their kids are reading about LG LGBT. Um, race is obviously a you know, third rail in this country right now. And, um, 
and it it um, make taking the stands that they are uh, that these Republicans are taking gets votes in a way that it never has before, and um, and that's why I fear you know we're just going to see more of it. Um, certainly in the midterms and then again in the, in the presidential race, um, no matter who I think the Republican candidate is. Um, and, um, you know, we are, you know, we are a deeply polarized nation and that inevitably is reflected um, in, you know, in fights over free speech. I wanna take, you know, one of the hot issues right now is should former President Trump get his Twitter uh, account back? Um, and let's remember when and why his Twitter account was suspended. It was immediately after the January 6th insurrection, uh, the violent attack on the Capitol, and the fact that he was using social media to whip people, uh, not only to support him, but to um, take up arms to become violent and supportive of him. And, you know, there is a rich history of the use of media to mobilize people to violence. Um, the most famous one is probably in Rwanda, uh, the genocide and the use of the radio, a popular radio station and DJ who got on the air to tell people to take up arms against their fellow um, uh, Rwandans to kill them, to use machetes on them. And it was very low tech and quite successful. Um, and this uh, DJ has since been, you know, prosecuted for war crimes and is in jail. Um, so back to Donald Trump and his right to free speech. Do you think he should uh, have his right to have a, a, an enormous social media platform restored? Well, he certainly has right to free speech, um, but I think you're right. The question, you know, that the burning question is whether he he um, he should be allowed back. You know, the um, Facebook created an oversight board um, that includes many prominent uh, civil libertarians to 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 help provide guidance on issues like this, and they they have addressed. Um, the question of Trump returning uh, some time ago. And I think I agree with their, um, you know, with their concerns that um, there can't be a blanket ban on Trump uh, being on social media. He was removed because, as you say, he, he was, um, he was advocating um, he was advocating what many of his supporters consider, you know, were attempts to overthrow the government. Um, and he was lying through his teeth about um, the, the, the results of the election. And it, was pre it presented a combustible situation that combusted. Um, but uh, at the same time, they said he couldn't permanently be removed because that threat, um, which you know became so uh, you know so strong in January um, uh, of twenty one, doesn't continue to exist. There certainly is a, a certainly is a threat that um, he's going to continue to try to to make the claims that he's always made, but I. I think he can be returned, you know, if, if he is returned, it's gonna be with a lot of guardrails. I mean, he's gonna be subject to, to the same content regulations as everybody else. And if, um, you know, he, um, you know, persists in, um, you know, in misinformation, um, you know, they're gonna deal with it. They're gonna post warnings about the falseness of what he's saying. Um, and at some point they may, you know, if he refuses to uh, abide by the regulations, they're going to remove him again. So um, this could be a cat and mouse game between social media and Donald Trump. But, um, you know, somebody who's, who has a, 
been followed by 90 million people, uh, I think on Twitter, um, you know, I think it, it would be a, an, um, an injury to free speech not to, not to return him, um, at least provisionally. What about free speech in the age of misinformation? And certainly during the COVID pandemic, we have seen how misinformation um, you know, costs lives. People are being told things that are demonstrably false about getting vaccines, about, um, you know, there, there is industrial scale misinformation now. And of course, this isn't, isn't limited to social media. This is also on uh, right-wing media has been, you know, purveyors of misinformation of a variety of sorts. Um, should that be protected? Well, it should be, um, I think, with the same caveat, you know, that, um, uh, well, first of all, the social media companies have removed people for um, other people besides Trump for persistently engaging in misinformation. And um, why, you know, they don't have a great record at, um, at regulation. Um, you know, they at least are making an effort now. And I think that that should continue. Um, and wow. that, um, you know, wow. the people who are abusing, um, you know, the privilege of, of using wow. those services should be, um, should be removed. Um, if, you know, if they violate the terms of service of, of, those, of those groups. But I think you're right in pointing out this is just not a social media problem. It, it's um, this is the same issue that's come up with respect to the Buffalo shooting. You know, the white replacement theory um, has become a talking point for Republican politicians who are not using those words but are endorsing the idea. I mean, this is this is um, you know this is the result of you know them. Um, exercising their, their right to free speech. Um, and I think the only response, and ultimately, you know, the, the civil libertarians' um, response to hate speech has always been to insist, you know, not on accepting it, not on um, um, ignoring it, um, but in, in confronting it and in, in calling it what it is and, and pushing back against it and using counter arguments um, and I know it's not a satisfying answer in, in many cases, but I think it is the it is the best answer that that we have in a democracy that um, uh, that we just have to fight for the truth. Scholars of authoritarianism write about how authoritarian leaders use the tools of democracy to dismantle it. So um, you know, free speech. Um, using, you know, the, our, our love of free speech and uh, desire to protect it to ultimately undermine the ability of many people to speak. Uh, similarly, with election laws and voter suppression, uh, using the courts, uh, and now, of course, the most dramatic example, um, using the courts, uh, we're looking at the imminent end of abortion rights being guaranteed in the country that is a removal of a right that has been in existence for a half century. What worries you <laughs> as a, a, an advocate of free speech? Um, does that idea that this could be the most potent tool to dismantle free speech and democracy, does that concern you? Sure, um, of course. You know, democracy is always contained. There's there's risk in democracy, and um, uh, but it is these we can't. These are the, these are the same tools that um, that advocates for change depend on um, to make their case, and um, and it's hard. There's a danger that. Um, and in trying to limit the speech that we don't like, that we undermine, um, you know, we undermine that for everybody, including people who are fighting for change. 
Um, so, and, you know, I have to say that I've been in this business for, you know, 40 years and I've seen a number of, um, so I've lived through a number of crises and, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this since we're on Vermont radio, um, at following the Patriot, the, the passage of the Patriot Act, um, there was a great deal of concern at the power that had been given to government and that this, this power would, um, would be misused um, to, suppress, to suppress speech. And um, I remember going actually to Buffalo and to, to a, a meeting in Buffalo where people were so discouraged that they, didn't, they just didn't know what to do um, and how to respond. And what happened was a grassroots movement began um, in a number of um, small towns and then larger towns, um, rallying around the importance of free speech and fighting and pushing government, um, you know, passing laws um, uh, at, the, at the city and state level, um, limiting the, the um, participation of those governments in, um, in efforts at suppression. And um, it became a movement led by, uh, in part by Bernie Sanders um, to get changes in that law, um, especially um, with regard to um, threats to the privacy of bookstore and library records um, that birthed a national petition campaign that put pressure on the Congress that so blithely passed the Patriot Act in the first place. And you know, we succeeded in making um, important, in creating important safeguards against those abuses of power. So I guess what I'm getting at is that I understand this is a very dispiriting moment um, in American democracy. And I'm, I do share these concerns, but I also have experienced um, a lot of uh, movements to defend free speech um, and, um, and to push back against authoritarianism um, that, um, that have been successful. This is the way democracy works. And this is why speech is, is so important. We, you know, this is the, we use the, our speech to change you know, what the government was doing. And I think we will, you know, we're in the early stages of this now in Florida and Texas and other places around the country. Um, and it takes time to, to gather our resources um, and, and to get people on the same page. But we will defeat these efforts, I'm, I'm convinced. And, um, but, and so the lesson of, of the history of free speech that I've learned is that we will, you know, we will have free speech um, you know, as long as we're willing to fight for it. And this is a time to fight. Well, Christopher Feiner, I wanna thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me, David. This is great.